Hello and welcome to Fibonacci, the Red Olive Data Podcast, the podcast all about data and analytics, where we hear from leading specialists and get their take on the industry. I'm your host, Nikki Rudd. Today, I'm joined by Simon Benham, Head of Data Strategy at Catalyst Housing, one of the UK's leading housing providers in London and the home counties. And from the 1st of April, it'll be part of the Peabody Group, responsible for 104,000 homes with around 220,000 residents across London, Kent, Sussex and the home counties. Simon's background until he moved to Catalyst was in data governance in the finance sector. So is working as Head of Data in a housing association completely different or does he face similar issues? Join me as I chat to Simon about how data can be the driver for new sustainable living solutions in the housing sector and the importance of data quality, the right level of governance and regulation reporting. Let's find out more. Let's start with your background. (laughs) So your background's in finance and then the move to housing. How has the industry focus switch gone? And were there any sort of great learnings that you've brought from one industry to another? Or are you kind of facing the same issues, but just with different names? It's a brilliant question because... Everyone said, oh, perhaps social housing is going to be move at a much slower pace compared to financial services, but I found it isn't. Actually, the decision-making can be quicker in a housing association because you have that lean board and the different execs who can make that decisions for you, whether in financial services, you have to go up to the C-level suite, get answers, get decisions made, and that can take up to a couple of months. So, actually, it's about the same in the pace of it. And everyone says, oh, you know, people institutionalized. Far from it. There's some brilliant people are founding housing associations who want to help the customers. So in Catalyst, we call our tenants our customers. So they have a really good focus on customer service, which was one of the appeals to me. Whereas in FS, it's very much about how much money you can make as you would expect. Quite a few close friends have asked me, what is the difference between financial services and housing associations? It's actually your colleagues who you work with. And one thing I'm still getting used to after spending over 15 years in financial services is that in housing associations, your colleagues are very much nicer. You ask, it's none of it, it's not my job. I'm not doing that. It's we're doing it for the greater good. And you work incredibly collaboratively together. And even now, it still feels slightly alien. You expect a bit more in financial services. You look after your own area. You look after your own department, your own function. Whereas I'm finding in in social housing, everyone works closer together, but also in other housing associations too. So it's very much about let's all work together for the greater good. Obviously, the challenge with social housing in this country is a vast one at the moment, isn't it? With the um, shortage of kind of affordable homes. And we're obviously about to hit a crazy year in 2022 with rising living costs and all the rest of it. So what are you seeing as the main challenges and how data would be able to sort of help you with that within Catalyst? So with data in Catalyst, we're very much at the beginning of the data journey. They've got a lot of data and a majority of the larger housing associations have been a lot of mergers over the past few years. So there's huge potential to utilize that data but we have to get our data in the right place and as a single source of truth. So at the moment, the the big focus is getting data into one place ultimately, but also looking at the quality of data. So actually understanding, making sure we have all the right information and it's filled in correctly, so it's very easy for mistakes to be made. And when you've done a lot of migrations and buying and merging with other housing associates, making sure we've got the right level of data quality, because ultimately you can produce some brilliant reports, get some brilliant insights, but you don't have the trust in the data 
then that will erode incredibly quickly. So at the moment, our focus is on that, getting the right level of data quality, working with external consultancies to help us with that. But again, one of the lovely things and brilliant things about working in social housing is that you speak with the directors, they're the heads of, and people in our customer service center and other functions, they want to help. It's not like, oh, I've got to, got to fix this data, you know, mentality you get in other industries. It is what can we do to help because we can see how it will benefit our customers as well. But also it's going to lead on to bigger and, and greater things. I was at a housing conference in September and in social housing, over 85% of customers use mobile phones to access the internet. So we've got to get better at you know meeting our customers' needs. And everyone uses Amazon. I think Amazon's being used as a benchmark. So it's actually being able to use your mobile phone to look at your rent statements, to do repairs, to answer queries with that. And that's one of the things we've got to move quickly on. So when you're looking at this vast program of work and you're saying about the data quality and the sort of future aims, if you like, of kind of how you extract that information and then use it, where do you typically start? Have you got a process that you brought to Catalyst or are you kind of feeling away a bit and sort of seeing where you're at? Short of becoming an ostrich and burying my head in the sand and hoping for the best. It's a hard question to answer because we are merging with another housing association. So I joined Catalyst in May 21, was brought in to set up the data strategy team, get our data protection, data governance functions blooming is the best way. We had a good team set up and I worked with some brilliant colleagues in my team. But then we found out in late August, early September, we're merging with Peabody. So that sort of puts everything on hold. And it's a Catalyst owned, I think it's over 35,000 homes across West London and the home counties. Peabody are 67,000 homes across East London and Eastern home counties. So we're going to be the second largest housing association. And then you've got this, you know, what I've called a fog of confusion. Because everyone, you know, from the executives down to the directors have had to go through consultation, jostle for jobs as a head of service. I've got that still to come later in the year as well. And then you've got to concentrate on your daily tasks. You've got to concentrate on looking at data protection, looking at data governance and looking at data quality, as well as actually planning what we're going to do for the merger, working with people, you know, good colleagues in IT to understand what the IT roadmap is. And at the moment, there's three of us looking at what is the plan? And it's trying to pick out, to quote an American phrase, the low-hanging fruit, what can we do quickly and get it done? And without having great data quality and having the right governance around your data, you won't build the foundations to do the interesting stuff of advanced reporting. The phrase at the moment is AI and machine learning and good things like that. And without having the right data in the right place, the right level of quality, you can't do anything. But at the same time, it's keeping going, keeping the right level of engagement for the teams, focus on our customers, meeting their needs, protecting our data, making sure we meet all our requirements for data protection at the same time. And there's a huge amount of data we've got to merge together too. So where do we start? I've actually just been having this conversation this week looking at that, and it is going to be around how we get the right level of data quality in place and the right level of governance. I think for your work in governance, which you've obviously done and you've got a lot of experience with, I'm guessing it's meant that you've worked with the 
audit committee to address business risk with that at Catalyst. How's that come about and how's it sort of been taken on board? Is it kind of like a few, somebody's come in and they, and they really know this stuff or is it just been like, oh God, actually, hang on a second, we've got enough stuff to be going on with, like you say, with that many homes that we're just trying to do the basics rather than actually having to kind of be measurable and tick all the right boxes. With audit and risk committee, they want to provide assurance we're doing the right thing. We're not playing hard and fast with the data. So when I first joined, there was a migration of data from our old CRM system to the new one. And the audit and and risk committee asked the project team to provide some assurance that we are doing the right methodology. What you say is planning to happen will happen. And it was my second or third day in the business. And the CIO gave me a call to say, can you organize? Okay, we're one of the top housing associations within the G15. But at the moment, with the pandemic, everything is data-based. All the consultancies are incredibly busy. And it's just to look through, okay, we're moving data from A to B. Are we doing this right? And it took some time to find a team that could do that. And one of the times I've learned in my career at GE Capital is the power of the network and networking. So I was on a a round table and I met Jefferson, the MD of Red Olive, and we hit off. I'm originally from Berkshire. I live in Manchester now and work for a housing association in London. He lives not too far from where I grew up. So we had a bit of a common chat and we just hit off. And I can remember one Friday calling him up to say, "Uh, Jefferson, I need to tap into your network. I've got a situation. And it was quite a nice chat to explain to him. And he said, oh, we might be able to help. I'm like, okay, how can you help? Well, we've got the consultants to look at that. We've done data migrations. And we can look at the methodology being used and provide that assurance to your audit and risk committee that what we say on the plan will go ahead. So, you know, arrange some meetings internally. We like the guys. We can certainly see the value in it. And the CIO agree to it. The, the problem you have with assurance work and my time as a risk manager, we, we face the same, is that people think you're marking their homework. You think you're being checking up on them. Well, it's actually, we're not. We're almost a second line of defense or two and a half line of defense to protect them. It's very easy in any project to overlook something. So it's just making sure there was nothing overlooked, everything was in place. And thankfully, everything was. There was a few little things around testing that just needed some enhancement on. So actually, it gave the project team, the transformation team, a bit of a, oh, actually, yeah, we haven't thought about it like this. Let's look at it that way. And it helps mitigate the risks. So it's almost getting a completely fresh set of eyes to look at it look at what's being done, and just to make sure that you're heading in the right direction, which is what the audit and risk committee asked for, is just providing that assurance that there's nothing going to be missed off. And in social housing, if you're moving customer information, property information from one system to another, you have to report on that as part of the regulation reporting. And it's similar to financial services. When you report to a regulator, you do not want to miss anything out. And it's just making sure you do that. And I think it's providing that assurance to the audit and risk committee that we've thought of everything, if everything goes to plan. And you've got to think of the worst case. If it doesn't, how are we going to roll it back? How can we do that effectively? Which is what the team done. And the report was incredibly well received by the project team, the transformation team, but also the audit and risk committee. Do you think doing a project like that as, I suppose, your first big piece of work going in there, acted as a really good springboard for being able to bring in other elements of the data strategy? It does. And with the pandemic, everyone's working from home. So it's not as easy to wander someone's desk to have a chat with them to get their inside line. And on Teams or Zoom, you can't just randomly call someone, even if it does show and they're available. I always think it's a bit hard as a natural introvert to get that conversation going. 
it does help that you know you got this big piece of work, and ultimately the audit and risk committee do have a lot of influence on the business. It's something a board committee has asked for, so you have to do it. So I think it's actually good to get that in there and getting to know different people with different personalities and also getting your personality out there. As I said, so I'm not here to catch you out. So I'm here to help you. I'm here to make sure we've done everything. Ultimately, I'm like your get out of jail free card to make sure this is successful. So even if you did miss something off, I'm not going to shout about it. It's going to be, guys, can we make sure this is included in the plan? Ultimately, I'm not here to catch you out. I'm here to protect you. Building from that, sort of implementing a data strategy, what do you think needs to be covered for it to be successful from a business perspective? I mean, you mentioned there about having all of the different stakeholders involved in it to be able to sort of say, did I? (laughs) But do you think part of that success comes from making sure that data and its value is understood by the entire organisation? Most definitely. And ultimately, IT doesn't own data. IT owned systems. It's the business owners or the business directors that own the data. And it's one thing when I joined the data governance manager, he insisted that all the directors who are data owners have that in their job title that they own the data. It is in their power and their remit to make sure the data is the right quality and is managed effectively as well. So it's getting that accountability and ownership across the business to do that. And you know, you always get some pushback, but you have to influence and explain why you're doing that. Then everyone buys in because then they can see the value of that. They can get their porting in place. They can understand things a lot quicker and get the information they need to make decisions. Then they have the trust in the data too, which is hugely important. There's nothing worse. And I remember my, my time as a reporting analyst many years ago, trying to influence a senior manager to say the data is correct and having to do a huge reconciliation to go back. And I managed to reconcile it back to the nearest penny to show that my report was correct. And it's very easy to create your own reports and produce the numbers that you want, but having a single source of truth throughout the business is key. And that's part of our data strategy is to make sure that we know the reporting that comes out at the end. We can see how everything's matched all the way through through the data lineage, know how it's been transformed and know that we have confidence in the data. But we can only do that with the right levels of data quality, making sure we have our data quality rules But when we set up our rules, we've gone to the data owners and their teams to understand what are you looking for? What do you need from the data? So even simple things like on the name and address, making sure the suffix is correct. Or making sure sometimes you even have first name missed out, you just have a letter in there because that's how people want it as well. And date of birth, it can be quite easy to press the wrong key. And even though the millennium happened 22 years ago, sometimes it's still very easy for those who was born in the uh, in the 1960s and 70s to put 19 in front of it. And just making sure, you know, you've got no one with date of birth, a simple check would be making sure, you know, if anyone's over 110 years old. There's this little darn thing that you forget about and just making sure you have confidence in the data and even things like getting email addresses in and mobile phone numbers. You know, like most people, I don't have a landline at home. Because I've got my mobile number, I've had the same mobile number for 26 years. And the only time, you know, on the landline people call is to spam you or the nuisance calls. So I have a landline, which is part of my broadband, but there's no phone plugged into it. And it's about making sure you've got those in place. And whereas before, you know, a home line was classed as a critical field, it's now a mobile phone, which is the, the critical field. And as I said, it's just getting that confidence and making sure you know, the senior stakeholders in the business have confidence in the data that's flowing into the reporting. But with the actual strategy that you've got, and you mentioned that obviously within housing, there's an awful lot of data and obviously with Peabody as well. What can you see as the sort of biggest 
challenges and also the biggest opportunities for kind of using data within the housing space? I think, as I mentioned, data quality is the huge one. Get that right. We can do lots more, lots more interesting things. And one of the things I think about, you know, what the opportunities of data, there's so many things you can think about. So you take the Internet of Things, thermostats connected to the Internet. One of the things, you know, I spoke about with different colleagues around the business is that if you see someone has their thermostat around 26 degrees every day or it's on 24-7, do we need to look at the insulation in that house? Is there an issue with the doors? Is there an issue with drafts and things like that? And it's also with repairs as well at the moment. With Amazon, you can take a photo of something and search for it that way. And the vision would be that if you're a customer of Catalyst, that you can take a photo of the issue on an app. It goes through to our survey team. It goes through to a surveyor. They can then get it sorted. And then it comes up, it gets approved. And then actually you can go on via the app to actually book a time and a date that's suitable for you. When you book a tradesman, and you know it's hard to get a tradesman at the moment, but you know just trying to get your boiler service. Yeah, I'll be around between nine and five, which everyone knows can ruin your day. But imagine having it like with Amazon, you can see where your parcel is. It's going to be delivered between one and three that day, and then you can see it six stops away. And having that to say, we know the guy who's doing your repair is on the way. You can see where he is and things like that. And that to me is the level of customer service that everyone expects now. And I think that's what we've got to aspire to to do that, but also with the Internet of Things, where we have washing machines that are connected to the Internet, boilers as well, and even things like having a boiler that's connected to the Internet, which connects to catalyst systems. If we can see that it's not performing as effectively as it should, do some preemptive servicing instead of waiting for it to break down, and that will increase our level of customer service and also keep costs down and also keep our, our customers happy. And that's the type of advanced things we should do. It's very simplified, but the whole infrastructure behind that, having the right data strategy in place, needs to support things like that going forward. You mentioned there about the kind of preemptive maintenance. So that predictive nature of, you know, once you've got those data systems set up, do you think it will give you a sort of better understanding of your tenants, of your customers, as you'd sort of say, so that you could sort of help them more as well? You know, I think for some people who find themselves in social housing, or who are, you know, sort of living in that, they actually sometimes, particularly if they're elderly, you know, and they're on their road, you might be able to actually sort of say, hang on a second, David, they haven't put the kettle on properly or, you know, for a week. So it could change the whole kind of nature of your future services of actually how you work with them. Definitely. And I think, you know, you just look at Apple Watches and the TVs on for Apple Watches. They have it that someone falls over in the US wilderness and they've fallen over and it says, please respond within five seconds. And, you know, managed to knock themselves out falling over. And it sends a, an emergency call to emergency services with the coordinates. Okay, that's just Apple with their great technology and software. But like you said, if we had an elderly person who fell over, having an alarm or even just something on their wrist that could attract the warden, or even just having sensors in the house to say they haven't moved during daytime or something like that would be a great help you know it's not intrusive like having cctv watching you all the time that seems a bit too 1984 intrusive but actually using technology to connect like that as you said you know if the kettle hasn't boiled at eight o'clock every day you know why are they still in bed can we get the ward up just to make sure they're all right is mrs smith mr smith okay i think that's the way it should be going as well making sure that you know we use technology to look after everyone 
You mentioned, obviously, that Catalyst has been acquired by Peabody and you've obviously got plans and there's sort of a lot of, I'm guessing that, like you say, doing something in the short term that you can do, but at the same time sort of treading water until everything sort of happens. But how are you approaching that integration of systems? What are you thinking is going to work well? The key bit is working with our colleagues in IT to understand what the IT roadmap is, what is the strategy of it. But also, you know, our colleagues in IT at the moment are making sure that when the merger happens, that the systems that have been selected, are they going to be robust enough to cope with the increased levels of demand? And then from that, I'll be looking at the data, you know, making sure the data flows in. There's two very different systems that are used between QL and Northgate, two different CRM systems used in housing. QL can be very unstructured i think it's the best phrase to use where you can change things whereas northgate you load something into their system it has to meet all the requirements to load in otherwise it gets rejected so it's making sure we've got all that in place and to make sure that the migration goes smoothly ultimately for our customers because they don't need to notice the back-end systems you know and our colleagues across catalyst and peabody it needs to be seamless for those guys as well there's nothing worse when you make a call for someone and go, oh, I've got a system issue, or I'm still trying to wait for it to work, it just leads to a poor customer experience. And that's one thing we need to avoid as well. And it's quite easy to forget about that when you're looking at migrating data. And it's been working very closely with our colleagues across the operations world to make sure that everything goes smoothly for them and understand their issues and making sure their requirements is met from anyone who's out there in the field, working with our customers to people in our call center, all the way up to our chief operating officer too. When you're coming into a sort of planning like that and you have your kind of delivery, if you like, your milestones or your aims, how would you sort of recommend that if somebody was going to do a sort of big project like that, they would get everybody involved with it? And how important do you feel the kind of reporting and the communication back out about how the project is moving along and how often you're kind of giving updates on how things are moving is considered? I think communication is key because people want to know what's going on and how it's going to affect them. But there's also a lot of time where we just don't know what is happening. And so it's just explaining to people, this is where we are in the planning stage. This is what the long-term goals are. And as part of the planning that we've been working on is actually what are the outcomes we want to achieve from this and then work our way back. And what can we ring fence? What can go on hold for now? What are the things that are burning us the most? And then work on that. Then once we've got that plan together, is actually communicating it out to the business, say, we're working on this, we need your help. Let's improve this. And one of the key things we're looking at is data quality. So we're doing a, a proof of concept to work with our customer data to make sure we get that in the right place. Once we've got that in place, we start doing some updates. We work on other data as well. And again, it's just making sure that people are aware we're doing that. You get their buy-in, but also show them the benefits of doing this. So once we've got this in place, it means we can load the data into our new system where everything will be working as we expect it to. We're not going to have to shift around or do lots of searching. The information you need to provide great customer service is going to be there. And it's explaining that benefit to our colleagues from that. And it seems quite easy and quite straightforward, but the amount of work behind the scenes is going to be huge. And that's what we're still looking at doing and even just trying to work out resourcing and costs for that. And then you've got the challenging timelines as well. When you get told we need to get it done by X date, it all sends a chill down your spine and you're like, oh, how are we going to do this? But again, it's breaking down the problem into small pieces and managing it that way and then focusing on the areas that you need to target that you're going to get get the most benefit from. So in a way, it's quite exciting. I'm personally looking forward to doing it and working on it to see the benefits from that. There's always going to be bumps along the road. But when you see what we can get done in the next two years, two to three years, 
and how far you can advance on, it's going to be brilliant. I think now it's becoming a bit more visible that actually the more data you have and the better you understand it, the speed with which you can react to situations can be a lot faster. I think sometimes larger organisations might think, oh, yeah, okay, fine, but there's still that kind of enterprise, if you like, thinking of that kind of it still has to go through a whole process and checks and the rest of it, rather than being perhaps as agile as maybe some people would expect, you know, sort of with today's technology. Definitely. And then also, you know, you have GDPR, which people try and hide behind. It's one of the interesting things. Oh, we can't give out the information because of GDPR. And as GDPR is in my remit, I just ask the question, why? Well, because of GDPR. No, what's the reasoning behind it? Why? Give me the legitimate reasons for you saying that. And quite often, people just don't know and they're actually quite afraid of it. But actually, within the GDPR framework and the Data Protection Act, there is a framework in place to provide that information out. We have good reasons for sharing that information in an emergency as well. And I think, you know, from a moral perspective, people won't have an issue with people sharing that data to make sure everyone is okay. But you can't share your data just because you want to. And a data practitioner I follow on LinkedIn come out with a really personal point is that uh, companies don't own the data. They're merely looking after it for you. So it's a really interesting way to think about it. It's one thing I challenge my team on. We don't own this data. We are looking after it for our customers. How would you think about if you know you lost all that information? But at the same time, when there is a serious situation, would you be okay with sharing your data? And often it is yes, because it's for the greater good here. What I was going to lastly sort of touch on was sustainability. Now, having a look at the Catalyst site and you've got your big big delivery plan and obviously looking to build new homes and have this big aim for, <laughs> with your carbon footprints. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're planning on using data to make that happen? So sustainability is fascinating. That's one thing we need to get a deeper understanding of with our data. So when we construct homes, is getting all the information in there. And even though I live in Manchester, 200 miles from London, it's quite interesting because you look at the sum, everyone's trying to insulate homes to keep them warm. But with climate change, you're finding, especially in London and the southern England, in the summer, there are more and more days where the temperature doesn't dip below 20 degrees at night. And if your home has lots of insulation, that heat is going to be trapped inside your home. So actually, is it going to be hotter? So it's actually working it out you know, for the sustainability. How do we keep air blowing through homes to keep things being cooled down, especially when we get to summer? Then the other side is when we have a, you know, a beast from the east or a, or a really cool spell, how do we keep our customers' houses warm as well? So it's actually understanding the materials being used and making sure we have all that right information in place. But again, Catalyst is an old housing association that's come through different guises over the years. We own a lot of Victorian Edwardian housing stock in West London. I live in a Victorian house that's currently where I'm sat is 16.8 degrees where I'm sat on my desk. And it's 7.6 outside, which is not too bad for Manchester in January. But it's that whole piece of if you insulate a Victorian house, you're going to get condensation inside. You're going to start getting mould as well. So how do you get that sustainability and how do you start working with that? And you've got all the different protests and different environmental groups as well. But again, it's disruption to people's homes. 
how do you work with our customers to make sure you get the right balance as well? And again, with new homes as well, there's things changing all the time. And, you know, what is the most efficient way? You look at the changing, you know, from stop using coal, oil, gas is seen as this almost neutral, sustainable as we move to more zero carbon wind and solar panels. So you have to think about how can we fit these in our new developments? How is that going to work? And I know one development that the CAT has set up where we have a shared boiler it's actually more efficient to have one large boiler supplying the hot water and the heating, the hot water for the heating through one large boiler than 12 smaller ones. But then you've got to understand the data behind it. Out of the 12 homes, who's using it the most? Do you just split it by 12? Is that the right way to do it? Or do you do it by how much they're using? Because you can have one person like me that prefers the house cooler and you can for someone else who wants the house at 24 degrees. So who pays for that? And that's where you need to use data and information to balance that out. It's that understanding your customers as well. I mean, they sort of, okay, we're all moving, hopefully, to a greener planet. Everybody's realised that, you know, we need to do that. But that rate of change and how people feel like they're empowered or that they're brought along or whether they're just being told, no, actually, all of a sudden, your house has got to have this. Do you feel like that communication, again, with your customers about what they actually want in the future is something that data is helping you get from them and also report back to them? And I think that's one thing we've got to have a two-way conversation with our customers about to get the feedback of what they're looking for. I don't think you can dictate to any customer about their needs and wants. It's got to be that two-way street to understand because you've got different people at different stages of their lives. So they all have different needs too. So it's getting that right balance and understanding that. And this is where you move from something, you know, where it's what I call evidential data. You can back it up to a source system into the more sort of marketing side of, giving people, giving their opinions, giving their viewpoints, what are they looking for? And again, it's that accountability. Who is going to be responsible for installing electric charges in people's houses? If you're a homeowner, that would be your one. But if you're a social housing, is it your landlord to do it? And do you want it as well? And that's going to be the interesting item as well. Do you want to have a car charger? Data seems to me to be a real opportunity for a retrospective of how things have gone and and also a real sort of future looking what things do we need to put in place so that things work better and I think there's obviously kind of more awareness that actually those looking backwards and looking forwards kind of are a bit more hand in hand than perhaps people might like to think particularly if they're thinking it from an IT perspective. With new people coming into the industry what sort of skills or yeah, abilities do you think or passions do you think that they should have that you think would work well? I think it's a lot of soft skill sets now. I think that's the important bit, the ability to work collaboratively with each other, understand each other, but also to challenge. That's the thing with data, to challenge the data, is it right? Where are we going with this? Challenge your assumptions. And just having that inquiring mind, I think those are the key things at the moment. It's very easy to pick up the technical skills, you know, the developers, the more sort of database development. But actually, it's providing the insights. And one of the things for the merger that I'm speaking with, the guys I'm working with is, guys, we've got to tell a data story here. What is the story of our data journey? And it's being able to articulate that. 
and as someone who got a C at GCSE back in the day, and it's something I've got to keep challenging myself on and improving on. How do we tell the story of data? What is our journey from that? So from improving our data quality and having the right governance in place, what can we do from that? We can get more interesting reporting. From the reporting, we can get more insight into our customers and how they're living and their demands. And then from that, we can then use that to forecast their needs in the future. And then you intersperse it with climate change, becoming carbon neutral, sustainability. And then you have this whole big puzzle which starts to form a clearer picture where you can tell your story on and where you want to move to. And I think if anyone's looking to move into that data field, it's almost being that bridge between being able to understand the technical side of data, but now to explain it to non-data people through storytelling. A really interesting take on the importance of data quality, management and reporting from Simon, as well as some insights into how data can drive future business decision making. Join us for the next episode of the Fibonacci podcast, where we'll be joined by another data expert sharing their thoughts on the latest trends in AI and big data. Make sure you subscribe to Fibonacci, the Red Olive Data podcast, from wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Nikki Rudd, and we'll see you next time.